Okay, Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. And I, I just want to tell you, if last week was a little hard and a little convicting, this week is going to be a flood of encouragement. It is going to be a flood of gospel hope and gospel peace and joy. And I just can't wait. I've been just soaking in this all week. So I cannot wait to bring this to you. Colossians 3, we're going to start in verse 12. We're going to go to verse 14. I'm going to read it. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to dive into it. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Father, we've been singing about your love all morning, and now we're going to just dive into it again in your word, and so we praise you for it. We ask the Spirit to show us the Father. We ask the Spirit to show us the Son, and so I'm going to pray it again. We want to see you in this. We want to see your beauty and your glory and your holiness and all that you are, that our hearts would be consumed by you, our imaginations would be totally captured by you, and that you would transform us as a result of what we see in your word today. Help us to feast on this and be satisfied by it for your glory. Amen. So in 2001, Tiger Woods signed a five-year contract extension with Nike for just about $100 million. And up until that point, this was the biggest endorsement deal in the history of sports. Now, since then, LeBron has totally beat it with like a billion-dollar deal, and, and Ronaldo, best soccer player ever, has beat it too with a billion-dollar deal. But at this time, um, this was like no one came close to Tiger Woods. $100 million just to wear some Nike. I think there are two types of people in the world. Um, the kind of people who pay to wear brands and the kind of people who get paid to wear brands. And then maybe a third type that doesn't care about brands at all. And I'm with you. Um, but here's the thing I want you to see. That $100 million deal made Tiger a Nike man. And every time he played golf, the only thing, the only thing he wore was Nike. He was decked out from head to toe, Nike hat, Nike polo, Nike pants, probably a belt if they made them, Nike socks and shoes, equipment, and most importantly, Nike golf balls. He was a Nike man. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but back in 2005, this is when I still watched golf because Tiger was playing, uh, but do you remember this legendary chip shot, 2005 at Augusta? the masters, and he, he chips this like impossible shot and the ball's rolling toward the cup and then it stops right on the edge of the cup and it's like going to stop and then somehow miraculously it, it falls in. Do you remember this? I have a picture of it. I wanna show you this picture. It's like Nike's dream right here. <laughs> One of the most legendary moments in sports history and it's like the ball was being paid by Nike because it stops just long enough for everyone to stare at that little swoosh on the side. And then it's like, did everyone see all 15 million of you watching at home? Okay, now I can fall into the hole. And then it goes into the hole. 
I actually read some marketing data and between 2000 and 2010, Nike made $104 million off of their golf balls alone. And it was mainly because of that event right there. I actually read too from the same uh, marketing firm that every time Tiger Woods played in a final, he didn't have to win it, he didn't have to place. If he played in a final, Nike made $22 million just from Tiger being there. So he was worth every penny of that $100 million. This is what I want you to see. Tiger Woods was a walking billboard for Nike which means he didn't just represent himself everywhere he went, he represented this, this brand. And he did it so well that millions of people were drawn to Nike and they made bank because of it. I think in a lot of ways, this is what Paul is talking about in Colossians 3. And I think this is what he's saying should happen with every single one of us who claim Christ. In the same way that Nike had bought Tiger Christ has purchased us. We were bought by the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross. We didn't get $100 million, but we got something infinitely greater. Our reward is heaven. Our inheritance is glory. Our prize is God himself. And that contract was sealed by his very life. And so now we don't just represent ourselves anymore. We represent him. We are Christ's men and Christ's women were walking billboards for Jesus. And this passage I just read literally says that we are to deck ourselves from head to toe in him. Put on Christ, wear Jesus everywhere you go. 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says it this way. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What does it mean to glorify God? This is like one of those church words that gets thrown around a lot and nobody knows what it means. To glorify God simply means to make him look as good as he actually is to people who don't know him. So you were bought with a price, make God look as good as he really is in your body. Does that make sense? Put him on, be walking billboards for Jesus. So, I'm going to answer two questions today. The first question we need to answer is, what in the world does it look like to put on Christ? Because that's kind of a mystical thing. It's, it's, a, it's a weird thing to say, how do you put on a person, like clothing? What does it mean to put on Christ? How do we deck ourselves from head to toe with Jesus? Well, Paul answers this question by giving us seven different items. If you like to write up your Bibles, you can circle these things. There are seven different articles of clothing that when put together, sort of make this Jesus ensemble. Look back at verse 12 through 14 and I'll show them to you. Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and above all else, love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is another way of saying put on Christ because every single one of these words is a word that doesn't just describe Jesus. It's a word that is ultimately defined by Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of compassion and kindness. 
Jesus is the personification of humility and meekness. He's the ultimate expression of patience and forgiveness. First John 4, 7 through 8 says, Beloved, let's love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So when we put on these things, we're putting on Christ himself. That's what Colossians 3 is all about. Put off the old man that was defined by sin and death and put on the new man who is Christ. Wear him everywhere you go so that he might be all in all. So that's what it means to put on Christ. We put on these things. So now the big question that I wanna answer, and this is where we're gonna camp out for the rest of our time here is why is it so important? that you wear Christ everywhere you go. Why is it so vital? I'm a why guy. If I don't know why, I'm not gonna do it. And if your why is guilt, I'm definitely not gonna do it. If your why is shame, forget it. Why in the world are we supposed to put on Christ? I wanna show you two things that hopefully will revolutionize your thinking about why you wanna put on all of these things and hopefully it'll change your life and hopefully it'll draw people to Christ. Two reasons I wanna show you that it's absolutely vital we dress ourselves in these clothes. Are you ready? First, it's absolutely vital that we put on the clothes of Christ because of what we've been made. Look back at verse 12 and I'll show you what I mean. Put on then, or therefore, because of this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, if you're new to the Bible, welcome. It's the greatest book in like the world, okay? If you're new to the Bible though, those titles might not stand out to you, but in the ancient world, and especially if you were a Jew, those titles were everything because these were the titles that God gave to the people of Israel to show the world that they belonged to him. In fact, look at Deuteronomy 7, and I'll show you exactly where this comes from. The Lord says this, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, which is this idea of love and affection out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. These are the three titles that signified to the world that Israel belonged to Yahweh. He was their God and they were his people. It was their identity. Now this is the point. Those titles have been given to us. We've been chosen. We've been treasured. We've been made holy. And so this identity that used to define a nation now defines you. You are the people of God. But here's what's really fascinating and here's what's so incredible to me because that's good, but this is better. These weren't just titles used to describe the nation of Israel. Do you know what happened when Jesus showed up? He was the perfect Israel. And so all of these titles were given to Jesus. Luke 23, 35, Jesus is the chosen one. Mark 1, 24, Luke 4, 34, Jesus is the holy one. Matthew 3, 17, Jesus is God's son whom he loves. So in other words, this is what you and I need to grasp. It's this fact that when God calls you chosen and when God calls you holy and when God calls you loved, it's because when he sees you, he sees his son. 
that's incredible. If you stop and think about it, this is literally the opposite of every other religion on earth, by the way. It's the opposite because every other religion just flips that around. Every other religion says, if you want to be holy, then you've got to spend a lifetime putting on holy clothes. You got to clean up your act. You got to go to church, stop looking at porn, stop getting drunk, stop being a jerk. And on and on and on it goes. If you want to be holy, you got to do something about it. As Buddha once put it, strive without ceasing. Never stop trying to be perfect. If you want enlightenment, if you want salvation, do, 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 and then do some more. Never stop chasing perfection. Strive without ceasing. That's what every other religion says. If you want God to be happy with you, according to every other religion, if you want God's favor, if you want his affection, if you want his love, you've got to earn it and then cross your fingers and hope it works. I used to play soccer with a, uh, a guy who was passionate about his, his Muslim faith. Good friend, jacked, man, so jacked. That's beside the point. But um, uh, we, we loved talking about our, our, our religion, our worldview, because we're really passionate about him. Obviously, I'm, I'm passionately Christian. He's passionately Muslim. And, and so we would have these great conversations. And, um, and so as a result of that, I was like, I got to read some of the Quran. Like, I have no idea what this says. I got to go to the source. And so I read the Quran or a big chunk of the Quran, not the whole thing. And um, it was heartbreaking. And, and my friend and I talked about this and, and, and he owned this and, and he just was kind of like, this is the way it is. My, my, my friend would pray and he would fast and he would give to the poor and he was a really good person and he would do all of these things because he wanted to earn God's love. He wanted to earn God's favor and yet in his book, the Quran, they literally teach that it doesn't matter how much good stuff you do, you can never be certain that God actually likes you. There's passages like Surah 1967 through 72 and 5722 and they, they literally say that in the end, you're going to stand before Allah and Allah is going to send whomever he wants to hell for whatever reason he chooses. This is staggering to me. Surah 31, 34 and 46, 9, Muhammad himself isn't sure that he's going to gain admittance into paradise because no one can know for sure. The founder of the religion doesn't know if God likes him. If you want God to be happy with you, you've got to earn it. You've got to clean up your act. Some of you are here right now because you're trying to clean up your act, because you're trying to get God to like you. You're like, man, something's got to change. Maybe I should go to church. That's, that's every other religion. The Christian gospel, though, says something totally different. I mean, totally different. It says, you have already been made holy. You've already been made holy, not because of anything you did, but because of what Christ did on your behalf. The Christian gospel says, you've already been chosen. You've already been loved. He's already got you in his heart as his treasured possession not because you were worthy, not because you cleaned up your act, not because you went to church and loved him, but because he is love and he just chose to love you. Listen to how 1 John 4 puts it. 
and contrast this with the Quran. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the Christian gospel. We don't put on Christ so that one day we might be someone to God. We put on Christ because right now we already are. Everything. You are his son. You are his daughter. He loves you in spite of what you've done. In fact, in spite of what you'll do later today and tomorrow and the day after that. He doesn't call you son and daughter because of you. He calls you son and daughter because of his son. Another way of saying this is we aren't told to put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and forgiveness to get our identity. We're told to put on all of those things because of our identity. If you get that mixed up, you're not believing the Christian gospel. That's the first thing we need to see. It's absolutely vital that we put on the clothes of Christ because of what we've already been made. Follow him? Number two, it's absolutely vital that we put on the clothes of Christ because of what we've been given. And this is just a a little bit deeper explanation of the first point. I want you to see something really, really beautiful and really incredible in this text. And that's the fact that everything we're told to display for others has already been demonstrated to us by Jesus. Every single one of these things. In other words, we haven't just been the witnesses of, of God's characteristics. We have been the recipients of them. We've received them. We've experienced them. And so what we've experienced must be expressed. I love how one author put it. He said, everything Christ does in us is meant to impact everyone Christ puts around us. Isn't that good? And so what we need more than anything is to really grasp what Christ has done for us. Because if you have a compassion problem and you have a forgiveness problem and you have a love problem and you have a humility problem, it's because you don't know what he's done for you. And that's what we've got to see. So first, let's start with compassion and kindness. And I'm going to lump these two by two because that's kind of how they go. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been the recipient of divine compassion and kindness? Compassion is the word that we use when someone is heartbroken over the needs of others. Kindness is the word that we use when that person actually does something about it. So compassion is seeing that commercial on TV, the starving kids in Africa. And and compassion is feeling something and not changing the channel and being moved by it just deep within you, even maybe to tears. Kindness is getting your checkbook out and sponsoring one of those children so that they won't be starving. Compassion is driving through Tent City in Uptown or maybe driving through Brook Hill or or maybe driving through Southside Apartments and, and being moved by the plight of your neighbor. Seeing people who are in poverty and who are struggling, who are in need, and not just turning a blind eye, 
but in your heart being affected by it. And then kindness is deciding to give away your time and give away your energy and give away your resources and give away your money so that they don't have to stay there. So compassion is feeling the pain of others and kindness is doing something about it. So I'll ask you again, have you ever been the recipient of divine compassion and divine kindness? Oh yeah. And more than you even know, more than I even know. See, we usually think of compassion and kindness as as the right response to people in need, almost as the expected response. If you're a good person and you see someone on the street, compassion is expected of you. And that's good and that's true. But but I wanna show you this, and this is a distinction that we need to understand here about God's compassion. When we think about compassion, usually, and I'm saying usually, this isn't every time, but usually it's limited in its scope. So, Usually we limit compassion to certain kinds of people, maybe um, certain kinds of situations with a specific kind of need. So for example, most of the time we have no problem feeling for and mourning over and caring for widows and orphans and the sick and the poor who are in their situation at no fault of their own. Tragedy struck. Maybe they lost a parent. Maybe they lost a spouse. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe they were just born into poverty or maybe they were born with you know, some type of handicap. There's nothing that they could do about it. It's out of their control and it's easy to show compassion for those people. We all know people like this. Honestly, guys, I have no problem feeling the pain of those kinds of people in those kinds of situations with those kinds of needs. They don't deserve to be in the situation they're in. But what about the people who are in need because of their problems, because of their sin, because of their mistakes? Like maybe the guy who's a drunk or maybe the one who struggles with gambling or the one who's addicted to drugs or committed some kind of crime? What about the single mom with eight kids from eight different men just looking for the handout, taking your tax money, you know? What about that? We don't have a category for showing compassion to the kind of people who are in their situation because of their own sin. Most of the time, our hearts don't break for them, our hearts are disgusted by them, right? We hold our noses when they come close, we look the other way and we say, thank God I'm not like that. Oh, thank God I'm so much better. Which is really another way of saying, thank God my sins are more private and secret and only God sees them. There's this crazy homeless guy. I see him almost every single day, getting off 277, getting on South Boulevard. And when I say he's crazy, he's crazy. He yells at us. He makes really aggressive physical actions toward us, comes at us. 
One time I wasn't with my wife and kids, but he, he came up and scared the mess out of them because he's knocking on the window and he's singing at them. Um, most of the time his pants are falling down, so you have to look the other way because it's like borderline indecent exposure. Um, he's crazy. I, I look at that guy naturally, apart from Christ. The last thing on my heart for that man is compassion. Especially knowing that he scared my family. I, I have a hard time showing him compassion because I look at him and I'm like, man, that's, that's his fault. Like there's clearly some addiction involved there. Like it's, it's his behavior is wild. There's no obligation for me to help someone like that. What I want you to do right now is do what I've been doing all week. Stop and ask yourself, what if that's how God treated you? I'll tell you, you wouldn't stand a chance. You are not the kind of person who's nothing more than a helpless victim caught in the wake of some terrible tragedy. You and I are willful rebels. We are open sinners who lived as if there was no God all the while shaking our fist at heaven, daring him to show up. What are you gonna do, God? Because I'm the king and I'm gonna do whatever I want. Look at how Ephesians 2 put it. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were not victims of bad luck. We were sons and daughters of disobedience. We were not casualties of a cruel world. We were children of wrath. If Christ only showed compassion and kindness to those who deserved it, we would have no hope of standing in his presence. And yet, his compassion is not like ours. And his kindness is not like ours either. His compassion and his kindness know no bounds. Look at how Ephesians 2 continues. But God being rich in compassion and mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Have you been the recipient of divine compassion and divine kindness? Yes, you have. So put it on and give it to others without condition, without distinction. God did not look into the world and see all of our sin and hold his nose and look the other way and say, I'll find someone else to save. No, he came close. 
he ran to us with open arms. And even though we stunk, he pulled us in and he made us holy. And he said, I love you. And I want you to be my son. And I want you to be my daughter, period. So we do this with everyone around us. What we've experienced has to be expressed. So that leads to the second question. Have you been the recipient of divine humility and meekness? As the old saying goes, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I like that. It's not looking at yourself and saying, oh, I'm such a wretch. Oh, I'm such a worm. I'm not good at anything. I'm not worthy of love and respect. I know people who say that and they know it's not true and it's like annoying. <laughs> like, I know you don't think that. Why are you saying that? That's false humility. That's not what humility is. Like if you're good at stuff, be like, I'm good at that. Praise God, he gave me, he gave me that gift, okay? Humility is not looking at yourself and being like, oh, I stink. Humility is thinking of yourself so little that you actually have space in your mind and your heart to think and feel for others. That's what humility is. It's just thinking of yourself less so you can think of others more. Meekness is very similar, though meekness, man, like we, we give meekness a bad name. I feel like no one knows what meekness is. So Jay Upton Dixon, he, he illustrated this perfectly once jokingly. Uh, he said that he was founding a new group for submissive people and it was called Doormats. And DORMAT stands for Dependent Organization of Really Meek and Timid Souls, if there are no objections. <laughs> Their motto was, the meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay with everyone else. And their logo was the yellow stoplight, okay? I think that's what most people think meekness is. It's like weak and timid and wimpy and scared and... Jesus was none of those things. I mean, God forbid that American Christians have painted Jesus as that because Jesus was not that. Jesus was the kind of guy who made a whip out of some cords and he stormed into a temple and he drove hundreds of people out and he flipped over tables and he called the holiest men in Israel, the sons of Satan. Jesus was not timid. Jesus was nobody's wimp. And yet Jesus says, I am meek. In fact, he says, his defining characteristics are that he is lowly in spirit and gentle in heart. The word gentle is the same word for meek. So, if Jesus wasn't weak, timid, spineless, and yet he calls himself meek, what in the world does it mean to be meek? I think the best way to think about meekness is to think about a lion playing with its cub. I watch this on the Nature Channel, and oh man, all those documentaries are the greatest things ever, and I'm always fascinated by how much abuse grown lions take from baby lions. <laughs> it just, it, it fascinates me. I mean, they're like ripping the hair, they're scratching the eye, they're biting. That little cub is giving his dad everything he's got. I mean, he is really trying to, to, to give it to his dad and the dad's just sitting there taking it, okay? All it would take is just one swipe to the face from that dad. And it's concussion, it's unconscious, maybe even death. 
but he just lays there and he takes it. That right there is meekness. Meekness is power under control. Power under control. He could crush that little cub, but for the sake of his cub, because he loves his cub, he doesn't. He's gentle. Meekness isn't weakness. It is having the ability to dominate and crush someone. Maybe it's with your words. Maybe it's with your body because you are really jacked or you're just huge. Or maybe it's because of your authority and your position or your power, your money. You have the ability to crush. You have the ability to dominate and yet you don't. That's meekness. Then when you put humility and meekness together, you know what you get? Someone who has power and yet uses that power to build up others. That's what you get when you put humility and weakness together. So I'll ask you again, have you been the recipient of divine humility and divine meekness? Yeah. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be taken advantage of or grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Jesus didn't use his power to crush you. He used his power to save you. He didn't look at us and think to himself, what can I get out of those people? He determined to give himself away for us. It's not that he thought less of himself. Believe me, he did not. He was God. It's that he thought of us more. It's not that he didn't like the comfort and safety and health and glory and worship of heaven. It's that he loved us so much, you so much, that he willingly gave them up. Could you imagine what it would look like for us to put on that kind of humility and meekness in our culture that teaches the exact opposite, that praises the exact opposite, that exalts the exact opposite? If you're strong, you're supposed to use your strength. Dominate. Doesn't matter who you hurt in the process, just get to the top. Your needs are the most important. Your preferences are the most important. If you're with someone who isn't meeting your needs, ditch them. Find someone else. Your happiness is the most important thing in the world. Could you imagine if you said, you know what, my happiness isn't the most important thing in the world. I'm gonna set that aside. Someone else, I'm gonna, how, can I, how can I serve? How can I help? How can I care? How can I lift other people up? Could you imagine what that would look like? Some of you say, oh, that's impossible. I'll be a doormat. Everyone will use me. 
My, my boss won't give me the promotion if I don't dominate everyone. My wife won't meet my needs if I don't constantly remind her of them. My friends won't take me seriously if all I do is serve them. And, and so we start saying all of this stuff and justifying all of this stuff. We don't want to be doormats, but this is what I want you to hear. Everything inside of us wants to move upward and downward mobility with Jesus is against everything that we naturally feel, against everything that we're taught, against everything that our world praises. And yet, it is this act of moving downward that we display Christ to the world. And so if you're not moving downward so that other people can come up, you are not showing people Jesus. That's what Jesus did for you. If you want to be a walking billboard of Jesus, if you want the world to see how great and how beautiful and how glorious he actually is, you've got to go down and put on humility and meekness. What you've experienced must be expressed. And I'm getting a lot less amens for this one. She got to do it. Next question. Have you been the recipient of divine patience and forbearance? As N.T. Wright once put it, kindness refers to our basic approach to people. So patience refers to the kind of reaction we should display toward them. Another author put it like this. Patience is the capacity to bear injustice or injury without revenge and without retaliation. And guys, you really need to see and understand this. God is infinitely patient. Oh man, the fact that you woke up this morning in spite of all of your sin yesterday is the patience of God. Exodus 34, 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Joel 2, 13, now return to the Lord your God because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. And 1 Timothy 1, 16, but for that very reason, Paul says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, <coughs> Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. God is not up in heaven waiting for you to sin so he can hurl down some lightning, so that he can give you a flat tire or ruin your life. That's not how God functions because that's not who God is. He doesn't have a short fuse. He doesn't have a quick temper. And there is never a straw that will finally break his back where he says, you know what? I'm done. That's it. I was patient for 10 years with that guy. Man, I was slow to anger for 20 years with that girl. I'm done. That's it. There's never a moment like that. When God looks at you and says that, you know why? Because he is long-suffering. 
because he is slow to anger, because he is immense in patience. That's who God is. He leads us back to himself, not because of fear, not because of shame, not because of guilt, but because of his goodness. So let me ask you, how do you respond when people offend you? I'm smiling to cover the, the shame. <laughs> how do you respond when people wrong you? I guarantee you somebody wronged you last week, offended you last week. Just think recent history. Maybe on the way here. How do you respond when people sin against you? If you have experienced the patience of Christ, put it on and give it to others. When you do that, you become a billboard that says the old man died. Christ lives in me now. Look at how amazing he is. Finally, have you been the recipient of divine forgiveness and love? Every single one of these could have been a sermon. We just put them all together in one. Psalm 65, three. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. When we were overwhelmed by sins, overwhelmed by sins, he forgave our transgressions. Miroslav Volf, a brilliant philosopher, professor at Yale, uh, written extensively on, on the subject of forgiveness, and I'd highly recommend, if you're a friend of philosophy and that kind of stuff, reading Volf. Um, I love how he describes forgiveness. He talks about forgiveness as unsticking someone from their sin so that the person moves forward and the sin doesn't. So it's like you get a knife and you just, you cut the sin off. You cut the offense off. You cut the wrong off so they move forward and they don't carry it with them. I, I think that's a, a really beautiful picture of forgiveness. It means that we don't make people carry for the rest of their lives, the consequences that might even be just for their sin. It means when you bury the hatchet, you don't leave the handle sticking up so that every once in a while you can just grab that handle and you can start swinging it again. It means you dig a hole six feet deep and it's dead forever. You unstick the wrong doing from the wrong doer. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, the Lord is talking, am he who blots out your transgressions. <sighs> for my own sake, I remember your sins no more. Amen? When Jesus buried the hatchet for the sins that you committed yesterday, 
and Friday and Thursday and Wednesday and Tuesday and Monday and Sunday and your entire life and for the sins that you're going to commit for the rest of your life, he did not leave the handle sticking up out of the ground. He blotted them out. He wiped them out. He's unstuck us from our sin. How did he do that? Oh, man. Isaiah 53. He forgave us by bearing our sin for us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. I love how one author put it, forgiving the unforgivable is hard. So was the cross. Hard words, hard wood, hard nails. Have you experienced that forgiveness? If you have experienced it, put it on and give it to others. This is the big question. Why would he do all of this for us? Why would he show us compassion and kindness and humility and patience and gentleness and forgiveness? Why would he go through the cross? Why would he take our sin and our consequence just so that he could forgive us? Why would he endure the hard life and the hard words and the hard wood and the hard nails just so you and I could be unstuck from our sin? The answer is that above all else, he loves you. He is love and he delights in showering you with his love. Everything we've talked about up until this point is because of his love. The reason his heart breaks when he sees us in our pain and our sadness and our sin is because he loves us. The reason he doesn't hold his nose and run away from us but instead shows us kindness is because he loves us. The reason he's full of humility and meekness is because he's full of love and those things are the expression of love. The reason that he patiently bears with us and forgives us is because that's what love always does. Paul says, put on love because love binds everything else together. It's the root that the tree grows from. And so again, have you been the recipient of divine love? Yes, you have. Look at the cross, it tells you the son of God slain for you. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, which means he loved you so much that he gave his one and only son so that whosoever believes in him will have life and life to the fullest, both now and forevermore. I love how the songwriter put it and then we'll close, but listen to this. Here is love. Vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. 
Who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise. He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. Listen to this. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers flowed incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world with love. We have been given the wardrobe of heaven, the clothing of Christ. It was crafted by the ultimate tailor himself. Wear it because of what you've been made and wear it because of what you've been given so that we'll be known by his clothes and the world will know him. Amen.